mayors have formal power and informal power. As a mayor, you are responsible for providing the basic services that people expect from the government, whether it's safety, whether it's public health, whether it's public education and other social services. Yet at the same time, the mayor is also a convener of a vision. It's an election year in New York City. Yep, we decided to do that whole rigmarole two years in a row. So let's take a look at politics in the greatest city in the world. When you talk to someone who has a very cynical view of government and politics, it's usually the same complaints and criticisms. It's everyone's corrupt, it's all pay to play, everyone is in on it, and it's, it's who's connected, and that kind of thing. And this idea of paying your dues in a political system in order to get to the top job as mayor. But what Andrew Yang is doing is saying, no, I, I haven't done all that. As someone who lives in New York City and has a very cynical view of government and politics, yes, I am watching Andrew Yang. In 2021, Andrew Yang isn't running a race he has virtually no chance of winning. Today, he's no longer some guy who decided to run for president. He's some guy who could seriously become the next mayor of New York City. So, who is Andrew Yang? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This where we talk about power through the stories of people who have it. Andrew Yang is currently the frontrunner in New York City's race for mayor. And although that election won't be held until November, it's pretty much a sure thing that whoever wins the Democratic primary in June will win the whole thing. Being mayor of New York is one of like a handful of the most powerful non-president jobs in America. So, like, we should probably know who this guy is, right? Andrew Yang was born in Schenectady, New York, on January 13th, 1975. His parents are Taiwanese immigrants, Nancy and Kei Sheng, making Yang a first-generation American. Here's Yang himself talking about visiting his father's childhood home back in 2019 on WMUR. My father grew up on a peanut farm in Asia with no floor. And when I visited his childhood home, I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, looking around this farming village, and I was like, how the heck did you go from here to... Um, so then my, my father uh, uh, ended up getting his PhD in physics from Berkeley, where he met my mom. Yeah, his parents met at Berkeley in California, working on advanced degrees. His dad in physics and his mother in statistics. Uh, so uh, you'd think I'd be a, a West Coast kid, but my father ended up getting a job at GE in Schenectady, New York, where I was born. So I grew up in upstate New York in Schenectady and then in Westchester County in a town called Katona. Westchester is the New York County immediately north of the city, but still not quite the city. It's where Bill and Hillary Clinton live, for example. Anyway, after General Electric, Yang's father moved to IBM, where he invented a bunch of stuff he holds patents for. His research focused on LCD screens, which are definitely things you use today. Yang's mother, who has a master's degree in statistics, worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield and then at SUNY Purchase, a state college, as an analyst and eventual director of the Department of Computer Services. Yang's mother is also a painter, in pastels mostly, and is president of the Pastel Association of Taiwan. 
which I'm sure has its own intrigue and scandals. But we'll get to that next season. In middle school and high school, Yang writes, he was, quote, like one of the kids from Stranger Things, but nerdier and with few friends. At some point, Yang asked to be sent away to boarding school. Here he is with Dave Rubin in 2019. Um, I went to this nerd camp over the summer called CTY that was run out of Johns Hopkins University. And then one of my campmates said she went to this high school called Exeter in New Hampshire and really liked it. And it seemed really nerdy and I was pretty nerdy. So I was like, oh, let's do that. So I came back that summer, went to my, my uh, parents and said, hey, how about sending me away to school? Phillips Exeter is a super elite, super expensive private prep school in New Hampshire. The prestigious alma mater of Mark Zuckerberg, Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, Roxanne Gay, fellow 2020 presidential candidate and very rich man Tom Steyer, and Eric Per Sullivan, the kid who played Dewey on Malcolm in the Middle. Back when Yang attended Exeter, the tuition was $17,000 a year. Today, the tuition is basically $60,000 a year. Which, holy shit, it's high school. You know there's a free one, right? But it seems like Yang found his style there. If you look up pictures of his 1990 Exeter yearbook, you see a confident guy with a probably cool-in-the-90s haircut wearing a trench coat. He told Jezebel during the 2020 presidential election, quote, I dare say if I win in 2020, I would be the first ex-Goth president. A friend disagreed, quote, I would call him more of a skater, new wave kid back then. After Exeter, Yang stays in New England and goes to Brown, another fancy private school in Providence, Rhode Island. According to the Brown Daily Herald, his life revolved around three things. Taekwondo, working out, and playing video games. Yang majors in economics and political science, and after he graduates in 1986, he goes on to another elite private school. Columbia University, which is in New York City. Here he is in 2015 in a book tour interview. I went to law school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, uh, and anyone else here go to law school because they didn't know what they wanted to do? You know, so you might, might remember that. No, it's really a terrible place to find yourself. So, uh, so I'm, you know, it, it doesn't say self-discovery school. It says law school. So, um, so, so law school still left me very much adrift, so I became a corporate attorney in New York. I guess that's what you did out of Columbia. Despite what you might think, Columbia Law School is the most corporate of the elite law schools. Most Columbia law grads don't go into public service. They go to work for so-called big law firms, which do billion-dollar mergers and acquisitions deals, and basically facilitate the machine of capitalism. It's not exactly public service. Like most other Columbia grads, Yang went corporate to a firm known as Davis Polk. PSA to anybody considering a career in law, corporate law is probably the worst non-manual labor job there is. Think endless 100-hour work weeks, miserable coworkers, and tyrannical bosses. Yang didn't even make it six months, and it's a time which he often remembers as the, quote, worst of his life. I left and said, you know, like, this, this isn't a really good fit. I remember going back to my parents and being like, I don't think this is the job you raised me to do. Um, they were like, what are you talking about? Of course we raised you to do that. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I left to start a company in 2000. I was 25 years old. This is the kind of confidence that going to fancy schools gives you. But anyway, what do you learn how to do when you're trying to start a company and trying to convince skeptical investors to give you, a 25-year-old with essentially no experience, a lot of money? Quite simply, you learn how to convince them to give you money. Or you don't, and then you don't start any companies. So 
as a 25 year old with my PowerPoint deck, it's not like people were just like throwing money at me to start this company. I got rejected over and over and over again until I had like run out of money and like moved out of my apartment. And uh, so, so six months later, um, someone wrote a check for 25,000 to, to our uh, fledgling little company. And I remember running to the bank to cash that check. <laughs> so I was like, I better get there before they change their mind and like, you know, put a stop, stop on this check. That fledgling little company was star giving. It's kind of hard to tell what star giving even did, like many dot-com era get-rich-quick schemes, but a 1999 press release called the company a, quote, high-profile celebrity charity event platform, which enables fans to become everyday philanthropists by allowing internet users to send money from corporate sponsors to charity, end quote. It didn't go so well. Here's Yang in 2012 in a TED Talk. So when the bubble burst, it was like a giant hand went through the streets of New York and swept away any company that was not nailed down, which included my little outfit. So at this point, I'm 25. Um, I've just lost investors about a quarter of a million. I still owe 100000 in law school debt. Um, and, and my parents are like, what happened? You used to be smart. <laughs> um, but but at, at this point, I've been bitten by the bug and said, you know what? I think I really want to do this. I really want to learn how to build a business, uh, create a company. So I'm going to submit this to you. So what should young Andrew do now? 25, lying on his uh, you know, floor, looking up at the ceiling. If you said give up and consider yoga teacher training, well, no. Here he is in 2019 on the Freakonomics podcast. I mean, I was a very sad 26-year-old who still owed 100000 in law school loans and had parents uh, still telling people I was a lawyer, even though I was not. And so I joined another startup, and I was very worried that it was also going to go under. Um, so I started throwing parties on the side as a side hustle. Um, and then I also started teaching the GMAT on the side for a friend's company. So I had three jobs during that time. The GMAT, or Graduate Management Admission Test, is one of the tests you can choose to take in order to be able to get into graduate school. And Yang's gig in test prep turns into his next big thing. In 2006, Yang becomes CEO of Manhattan GMAT, a test prep company, which would later become Manhattan Prep. This was good timing, at least for Yang. In 2008, America had a financial crisis. The fourth largest investment bank in the United States at the time, Lehman Brothers, went under. And while the rest of us got screwed too, at least 2.6 million people lost their jobs in 2008, when a firm like Lehman collapsed, that meant a lot of recent college graduates with some finance experience were suddenly looking for ways to get new jobs. And for a lot of them, that meant grad school, which meant applying to grad school, which meant taking Yang's company's classes. He told Slate, quote, as all of these young people lost their jobs, a lot of them turned toward business school. Lehman Brothers failed one day, and then literally the next day, all of our New York classes were oversubscribed, end quote. Yang raised his prices for a course from $100 to $1,490, which you don't need business school to know is a lot more. How do his employees remember CEO Yang? According to Slate, quote, Yang's former employees say they found a chill startup vibe and a boss with a whimsical presence in the office. Yang constantly sang musical narrations of what he was doing, like sending emails, and would strike a gong on Friday evenings to tell everyone to go home, end quote. Of course, there's a flip side. BuzzFeed News reported that a former employee of Manhattan Prep, a woman, claims she was paid less than her male counterparts and then fired for pointing it out. Another woman, Kim Watkins, claims she too was fired for unsavory and possibly illegal reasons. In 2019, Watkins wrote in the Gotham Gazette, quote, 
On the third day that I was back to work after my honeymoon in 2007, Andrew Yang fired me. Our private discussion in his office with the door closed began with Andrew's remarks that because I was married, I wouldn't want to continue working as hard as I had been. That as a wife, I'd be focused on my new life. At-will employees are let go all the time. I could be fired at any time without a reason. But Andrew did give me a reason. End quote. Yang denies this occurred and has said that, quote, there is zero truth to it. I'm happy to say I've had so many phenomenal women leaders that have elevated me and my organizations at every phase of my career. And if I was that kind of person, I would never have had any success. End quote. In 2009, Manhattan Prep is bought by Kaplan, the test prep industrial complex. And Yang becomes a millionaire. By this time, it seems Yang is starting to think about putting that political science degree to work. Listen to how he's connecting the dots here. So I personally taught the analyst classes at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. And so imagine doing that for six, seven years and then seeing the country go to during the financial crisis and then think, well, I know why that is, is because the smart kids have been <laughs> becoming uh, Wall Street bankers and management consultants uh, while the rest of the country was getting hollowed out. Enter Venture for America. The idea was basically to inject bright recent graduates into economies and companies that needed them, like a reverse brain drain to put smart kids to work at startups in faltering cities. In fact, it's not a bad idea. It's a pretty good idea. And Yang said Venture for America would generate 100,000 jobs by 2025. This attracted the attention of then-President Barack Obama, who recognized Yang as a, quote, champion of change. So how many jobs has Venture for America generated? As of 2019, according to Vox, less than 4,000. And more recently, in May of 2021, the New York Times took a look at the legacy of Venture for America. Quote, only a small fraction of the group's alumni have started companies. And most of those businesses have either closed or moved to traditional startup hubs like Silicon Valley. Today, only about 150 people work at companies founded by alumni in the cities that the nonprofit has targeted. In 2018, Yang published his second book, The War on Normal People, which is basically a blueprint for the policies he'd run for president on a couple years later. But about six months before he published The War on Normal People, Yang had begun assembling the machinery needed for a presidential campaign. And that starts with the money. In November of 2017, according to a Federal Elections Commission filing, he formed the Friends of Andrew Yang Political Action Committee. Just a few years later, he's on stage with now President Joe Biden. Mr. Yang. I know what you're thinking, America. How am I still on this stage with them? Our campaign is growing all the time because we are laser focused on solving the real problems that got Donald Trump elected in the first place. I spent seven years helping create thousands of jobs in Detroit, Baltimore, New Orleans, and other cities, serving as an ambassador of entrepreneurship under President Obama. And I saw firsthand what many of you already know. Our country is falling apart. Our senior citizens are working until the day they die. Our kids are addicted to smartphones or drugs. We're seeing record high levels of depression, suicides, overdoses. Our companies are recording record profits while our people are literally dying younger. Our way of life is changing faster than ever, and the simple fact is this. Our politicians in DC succeed whether we the people succeed or fail. 
Washington DC today is the richest city in our country. What do they produce? Bad decisions? We need to get the money out of DC and into your hands, the hands of the American people. Join us at yang2020.com and help us rewrite the rules of the 20th century economy to work for us. It's pretty compelling. And there was a big idea too. My flagship proposal is a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for every American adult starting at age 18. And this is a renaming of something called universal basic income. Martin Luther King fought for it. And it is what he was fighting for every day up to the day he was assassinated in 1968. Now one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists signed a study saying this would be tremendous for America. And it even passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971. It came this close to being law. So this is not as radical as, as you might think. Like he said, the idea isn't new. But it's hard to argue that Yang isn't responsible for bringing universal basic income into the mainstream. In 2021, the Freedom Dividend is back. But this time, Yang is looking at New York City. It's Yang for Mayor after this. Welcome back. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, Andrew Yang who could be the next mayor of New York City. Everyone needs to have a job, but why would anyone ever want to be the mayor of New York City? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. I I often wonder it myself. That's Katie Honan, who's kind of your classic city reporter. She covers City Hall for The Wall Street Journal now, but before that, she was at independent news dynamo DNA Info, where she covered the borough of Queens before the outlet's ruination by billionaire Joe Ricketts. Anyway, being mayor isn't all ribbon cuttings and firemen's balls. I think some people might think being the mayor of New York City is glamorous, but the day-to-day of operating a huge, complicated city like New York is very difficult, whether it's stuff you can plan for or stuff you cannot plan for. Some would argue that being mayor of New York is harder than being president. A lot of the presidency is dinners and flying around on Air Force One as your people do the real work. But New York has no Air Force One, and everything is impossible. What happens in New York, whether it's on Wall Street or in another industry, it reverberates around the world. So that's what makes this job so significant. And historically, the mayors of New York have not really moved on to anything higher than being the mayor of New York City. And and maybe that is the ceiling for them. Mayors of Greenville, Tennessee, Northampton, Massachusetts, and Buffalo, New York have gone on to be president but never has a mayor of New York, New York. And right now, New York is in trouble. There's this perception that New York has turned into a ghost town because of COVID. I mean, I live in Brooklyn. I don't really see it that way. But tell me about how COVID-19 has supposedly turned the city into a ghost town. I agree with you. New York City is, is not a ghost town. I bet many cities around the country would love to be New York when it's a ghost town. Yeah, like Northampton or Greenville or Buffalo. I think everything is defined by COVID at this point. And what we have right now is we're still in a pandemic. Obviously, we're, we're coming out of it and we're not where we were in 2020, but it's still challenging for people who are, for the most part, distracted by just the day-to-day living and surviving. Yeah, most New Yorkers have more responsibility than just making a podcast. But even I saw things. 
There were days when ambulance sirens were the new silence, and walks where you'd glance up and see bodies being loaded into a refrigerated truck, with two more trucks right behind it. As of May, more than 32,000 New Yorkers have died from COVID-19. New York City is very resilient, and it has been through a lot. And 2020 and COVID knocked the city out. And I think there's that trauma from that, right? Dealing with thousands and thousands of people who died and, and all the fallout that comes from that. New York City is grieving right now, but I, I don't know if it will ever get knocked out because of something like that. I think it's just the people who are here are too committed to it. And that's why this mayoral race coming at such a pivotal time, it's, it's very fascinating because everyone is kind of seeing and bracing for who will be the next person to lead it. It's really difficult to comprehend the scale of this tragedy. And I'm just going to say it again. As of May, more than 32,000 New Yorkers have died of COVID-19. But the death toll doesn't fully capture the blow the city has taken across the board. Nor does it capture the challenges the next mayor will face. I want to get back to that ghost town thing Katie Honan and I talked about earlier. Midtown is a ghost town. And if Midtown remains a ghost town, we are massively fucked. That's Harry Siegel. He's a senior editor at the Daily Beast, writes a column for the Daily News, and also hosts a podcast, FAQ NYC. Nobody wants to talk about this because it's, it's large, complicated, and painful, and no one wants to be like the best friend of big landlords right now. I hate Midtown myself. But if nobody is there, the economy that works for everyone else breaks down. The tourism part breaks down, the real estate part breaks down, and all the dollars and things that are supposed to spill out from that break down. This is a slow motion looming disaster. And understandably, given the pace at which that's playing out and the issues that are of the most concern to New Yorkers right now, it's not at the forefront of anyone's agenda. Yang, in fact, keeps talking about a love summer, right? Yeah. On April 14th, Andrew Yang tweeted, quote, I think this is going to be the summer of love in New York City, end quote. And he's talking to like young people in Bushwick and Ridgewood and whatever. Like, y'all going to go out. You're going to have a good time. Uh, 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 you might you might meet some sweet thing and have a real nice time. Enjoy it. We've all deserved this. We've been holed up for a damn year. Right. God bless. God bless. I hope lots and lots of people do that. However, that is not going to power the economy. And I think people who live lives that, that don't sort of revolve around that larger economy are sort of happy overlooking or ignoring this or expecting that it'll sort itself out in the same way the other candidates are expecting Yang will just knock himself off one way or another. And I don't think that happens. The natural course of things right now is a lot less people are going to return to offices on a five day a week basis than had been the case previously. At that point, Manhattan is massively overbuilt. You have many people who do white collar jobs and were able who've left the city, especially older people with families and whatnot, uh, who just didn't have to stay here. Those people don't all necessarily return. This could be very, very painful and over a sustained period of time. We're going to talk a little bit about how cities work on this episode. And in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, no matter how lame it might be, is the economic engine that essentially powers the rest of the machine. Back to Harry Siegel. So New York is not really meant for like native New Yorkers, which I am. It's meant for it's meant for immigrants and it's meant for a business class. And you don't have to love the business class, but like the whole setup breaks down if there's none of that. And those people, because they're liars and they cry wolf, like the police say, every reform means that the streets are going to run with blood. The business people say, if you raise our taxes the tiniest bit, we're all leaving. And they have lied about that for years and decades. But 
there are breaking points, and we've just hit one. Like, these buildings are naturally absent. The only thing that's protecting this at all is that most of these are long-term, like 10-year leases that aren't easily broken. But all these companies are thinking about, do we really want to have everyone back all the time? Do we want to be liable if they slip? Do we want to have to pay for the chairs, the office space, the insurance, all that? That stuff's really, really expensive. And if they're not paying for that, then we're living in a very, very different New York. So, so, so it feels pretty natural to me too right now. Like when I, when I walk around, when I want to see people, things like that. But I think if you're not walking through Midtown, you're missing the picture. And Midtown is a ghost town right now. And it isn't just about getting Midtown up and running again. Remember how Katie Honan said being mayor was difficult and not glamorous? Shootings were up like 100% from a year ago. It's really scary. It's widespread. It's significant. The NYPD is actually confiscating more guns than they have in almost 25 years. And that is yet to put a dent into this dramatic rise in shootings. Andrew Yang was born in 1975, pretty far from New York City. But in New York City in 1975, according to The Guardian, quote, Travelers arriving at New York City's airports were greeted with possibly the strangest object ever handed out at the portal to a great city. Pamphlets with a hooded death's head on the cover, warning them that until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. End quote. Older New Yorkers refer to this period as the bad old days. I always kind of picture it like the Warriors, but without the fun costumes. Here's Katie Honan. I think a lot of people, whether it's the fears are unfounded or not, people are afraid of New York City going back to what it was in the quote-unquote bad old days. And that is something that everyone is trying to stop that slide from happening again, because it can be really hard to dig its way out of it. The city has a really hard time, once it slides, coming back out of it. Every election is important, but the stakes are high on this one. I think the wrong mayor could be disastrous right now. I I think the, the downside to a good pick is very, very large. The upside for any of these people is low. I, I feel like the best case is like, you're going to have a very rough four years. And this is after Democrats got the two seats in Georgia. Many billions of dollars more than otherwise would have flowed into our economy and did provide some buffer that wouldn't have been there otherwise, which is great and wonderful, but like it is not going to be sufficient. This is going to be difficult for the next mayor. They're going to have to make hard choices and they're going to have to decide about what things you, you preserve and what things you shut down when there's less to go around. So back to Andrew Yang the guy who's currently in the lead to run this thing. Here's Katie Honan. Andrew Yang has entered the race saying, look, I want to help New York City. This is where I've lived for two decades. And I believe that I bring the optimism and the ideas to do it. And he has led every poll since he jumped in. I will point out that a lot of the polls, the polls all show undecided voters. So Yang has the name recognition. He's leading the polls with this caveat of people are still undecided on who they'll vote for. But he has this name recognition. He had a national platform and he's very well known. And he's also bringing a lot of energy to the race and that optimism that he has made his campaign's hallmark of I believe in New York City and and I want to see it thrive and I want to be the one to be there for that. Back to Harry Siegel. Andrew Yang says he's running because uh, he thinks he'd be the best mayor and he wants to do good stuff for New York. He's never actually voted for a mayor in New York, where he's lived for his whole adult life. And that seems striking to me. He says it was because it was boring and all the politics here were Democrats. Seems ridiculous to me since we had 20 years of non-democratic mayors between Giuliani and Bloomberg. 
Um, but really, he's running and because he has this, he had this built up name recognition and goodwill from running for president. And he wanted to find some way to cash those in. He realized he was very good at campaigning and liked it. He doesn't know if he'll like governing. He's never done it or run anything vaguely close to the size of New York. And we don't know. And that, that's why I think it's very risky. But the campaign is going brilliantly, swimmingly well. It really is, at least so far. I think a lot of people know Andrew Yang as the UBI candidate. I've seen him out on the street where people say, this guy's giving me a thousand bucks. That's the national program. And I think there is some misunderstanding of what the UBI plan and proposal will look like in New York City. It's at a far smaller scale because the mayor of New York can't print money. That's a key distinction. There are no New York City bucks, and a mayor doesn't have the ability a president has to literally just create money. So Yang's plan for New York City is really just cash relief to the city's poorest residents, an average of $2,000 a year for 500,000 New Yorkers. Andrew Yang, again, his signature thing as president was UBI and, you know, $2,000 a month. Wouldn't you like? Yeah, I would. So he's gone from that to a BI that is very un-U, in which the very, very poorest New Yorkers would each get something like $2,000 a year. Which, as policy, cash relief to the city's poorest residents isn't the worst idea. It wouldn't be easy, though, and it isn't obvious how this would work or where the money would come from. Would the money replace or supplement existing services? Andrew Yang says it would be more because the very, very poorest New Yorkers are actually really hard to get checks to. So he says, actually, the ones who, who manage to get checks at all, maybe they'll get $3,000 a year. And this will cost a billion dollars of city money. Pass that billion dollars of city money, right? No one knows what he's talking about. He says, I've got lots of private people who want to get in on this with me, and they're going to give a bunch more money, and we're going to expand the pool of people this applies to, and this is going to be like a basic income. And he wants you to not hear that there's no you there. But it's a totally different thing. What Harry Siegel is saying is that this is not a universal basic income or a freedom dividend. This is something different. And it is something different. What it is that Yang thinks that solves is it solves the problem of him explaining why he's running for mayor when the thing he ran for president for has absolutely no fucking relationship to this place. So that is his rhetorical trick to allow for this race and to come up with a plan that has some of the same words. And I don't, again, I don't think is absolutely the worst plan. And to pretend that the one thing has anything to do with the other thing when they have nothing to do with each other. Andrew Yang discovered he's good at running for office and he likes doing it. So he's doing it again. And that's cool and is right and God bless him. My concern is that might be enough to make this guy who maybe would be a great mayor, but I sure as hell wouldn't bet on it. And there's no reason to think so and nothing to judge it against. Like, are we just going to keep making this mistake again and again and again? So that's Andrew Yang's rationale for basic income in New York. And as I said, it has really nothing to do with his universal basic income plan. It has nothing to do with automation or tech. It's just a way of him recycling a slogan. Basically, it's marketing. So Harry Siegel is not happy, but that's politics. And speaking of politics, there's more to this story. I asked Katie Honan, if we take a look at the campaign, who's running this thing? His campaign is being run essentially by employees working with Bradley Tusk. Who is Bradley Tusk, you ask? Tusk Strategies is one arm of, of what Bradley Tusk does. Bradley Tusk, I guess his first job in New York City, this is per his book, The Fixer, he worked as a spokesperson for the Parks Department, then went on to work for Senator Chuck Schumer as communications director. So this was in 2000 to 2002, but 
He was there at a pivotal time after the September 11th terrorist attacks, worked for Bloomberg and after that, and then went to Illinois to work under Governor Blagojevich. Then he worked in finance, back to Bloomberg, and he's sort of now run multiple companies out of this Tusk arm. Rod Blagojevich is the former governor of Illinois, who was impeached for selling the Senate seat opened up by Barack Obama running for and becoming president. Chuck Schumer is now majority leader in the Senate, and Michael Bloomberg is the billionaire who was mayor of New York a while back, who literally spent over a billion dollars trying to become president in 2020. But back to Tusk. And is the relationship between Tusk and the Yang campaign unusual or notable in your view? Or is this just how New York City politics works? I think it's notable knowing how big Tusk is and how close they are working with this particular campaign. You know, and a lot of times in campaigns, you have obviously various people working on it, from consulting and lobbying firms. But this, because of the, the proximity and how close they are, yeah, I do believe it is notable. Whether it's unusual, people do it a lot, but this is the biggest one. And Tusk has been a longtime supporter of Andrew Yang. I know he donated to his presidential campaign and recruited him to run. So there's that involvement as well. This relationship has actual policy implications. He's probably the most pro-development candidate at a time when there's lots of debate and discussion around the city's development and about rezonings and about economic development. But yeah, it's the Tusk ties that other people have done much more impassioned reporting on, on this idea of is this sort of the quiet advisor to this person who, you know, is saying, oh, I'm, you know, politically independent. I'm not beholden to anyone. I'm only beholden to the people. Even though Andrew Yang is running as an outsider, his campaign is being run by people who are definitely not outsiders. Another person that is, you know, showing up in the Yang campaign, Liz Smith. Who's, who is Liz Smith and what's her relationship to the campaign? She does not have a formal role. I mean, she doesn't, she, but she is launching, it's been reported, she's launching a political action committee to support Andrew Yang. Liz Smith actually worked on Bill de Blasio's first campaign for mayor. She worked for Pete Buttigieg, so she has been around. So she is using her political might and connections to help elect Andrew Yang with these independent expenditures and political action committees that we have previously not seen do this level of, of work and investment in mayoral campaigns. Andrew Yang isn't the only mayoral candidate with a political action committee, which is kind of shocking and a little disappointing. But Andrew Yang is a politician, and a politician who wants to win. And that's okay. Remember at the beginning of the episode how we talked about cynicism? I want to go back to Harry Siegel. The cool thing about being around some people in power and seeing how they act and what they do is finding out that it really is just us, man. Like, there is no next level of wise sages or systems that simply handle themselves and are going to deal with things. Like, as you go up the chain, you have people, you know, who get tired, who get hungry, who get horny, who just fuck things up, right? And sometimes make good decisions. And sometimes lousy people, like, match the moment they're in and some of their instincts and superstitions are right. And and that thing works out for, for, uh, for the world and for them and whatever else. But, like... None of these people are all that special. All of these systems are frail and precarious, and keeping like a good, honest eye on them and avoiding awe, I think, is absolutely essential. At the same time, having nothing but cynicism and contempt for everyone who's in or around power is also uh, corrosive and wasteful, right? And, and, and actually blinds you because everything seems, seems ugly and dirty uh, and, and, and like muck when you do that. 
So understanding that there's nothing particularly special about folks with power, and also that somebody has to wield it and they need to be held to serious account for their actions and held to some sort of reasonably high, like a uh, uh, moral and practical standard, I think is very, very important. And people tend to yo-yo in their lives about that. So young folks, that's my, uh, that's my advice to you. I'm a very annoying dad sometimes. Andrew Yang is the front runner in this race. There's a very good chance that he will be the next mayor of New York City. When Andrew Yang ran for president, the Washington Post did a profile on him with the headline, quote, random man runs for president, end quote. But Yang isn't a random man anymore, and we need to stop treating him like he is. This sometimes reminds me of the reaction to Donald Trump announcing his run for president. Media outlets cheekily moved Trump news to the entertainment section and joked about how he had no chance. And obviously, he had a chance. I'm not saying Andrew Yang and Donald Trump have a lot in common, but I am saying that we need to learn from the past. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today we're talking about Andrew Yang and the importance of the job he's interviewing for, with 5.5 million registered voters on the other side of the desk. When I think about New York today and the disruption that's happening because of COVID, both for it and many cities around the world, I keep thinking about how do we make sure that New York continues to be a global center of innovation and talent and promise, because in many respects, New York stands for the United States. And so when we think about the role of a mayor, it has to think about the role of New York in the larger global economy. That's Amy Liu. She's an expert in how cities work and is the vice president, director, and co-founder of the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Before COVID, I think we had a very robust conversation across the country about the fact that the economy wasn't working for everybody. That's a conversation Andrew Yang was part of, by the way. There are many dimensions to this, but I want to mention one that people, I think, don't pay enough attention to. And that is as we transition to new technologies and the rise of the digital economy, we started to see the kind of jobs being created in the economy begin to bifurcate. What I mean is we started to see a soaring growth of high-skilled, high-paid jobs in the knowledge sector, whether it's in financial services or software development, computer science industries, and then a proliferation of low-wage service jobs, and then the manufacturing jobs that was a source of good middle-income wages all disappeared. And so part of the reason why we have income inequality in the country today is because we've lost growth in the middle band of jobs that anchor the stability of most families. And so the question now is, let's not assume status quo and continue to grow high wage and low wage jobs, is how do we be more intentional about growth and growing high quality jobs? That it could include targeting those industries in the services economy that actually pay middle wage jobs, water sewer services, actually the utility sector, some parts of logistical services is part of that. But the other is how do we improve the quality of retail jobs, restaurant jobs, because those service jobs will still be a big part of our economy. 
And in fact, in the COVID world, we've seen how important it is to keep grocery stores and frontline workers employed during the pandemic. And yet those workers don't earn enough or have health insurance for the kind of work they do. So how do we improve the quality of those jobs if they're gonna be a big segment? So that's part of why growth matters is what, there's so many cities that talk about job creation and economic development, but let's be even more clear about what kind of jobs we want to grow. And sometimes it is within certain industries and sometimes it's taking existing jobs that matter to us, where we call essential workers and improve their quality. Improving the quality of existing jobs almost sounds like a revolutionary idea. The other thing I wanna say about job creation is people always talk about businesses. We need to grow more businesses and attract more businesses to our society. And in fact, in New York, we're seeing a lot of high tech companies beginning to come and help diversify New York's historic reliance on securities and financial services. And that evolution and diversification of the New York economy is a good thing. The issue is who's part of business formation? Who runs these businesses? And can we also, when we talk about job creation, think about immigrant entrepreneurs, black and Hispanic entrepreneurs leading some of these growing industries and supporting their business startups as part of a growth agenda? And I think that's why when we talk about inclusive growth and equity, this is not about social services or charity. It is about centering the diversity of our people and our population, which New York has such a rich history of, but centering the diversity of our people in that growth, whether as workers or as entrepreneurs of companies. And the pandemic presents an opportunity to do things differently and to actualize a vision that departs from traditional models of economic development. Traditional economic development has been almost focused singularly on business attraction and business recruitment and measuring success by two things, the number of jobs we created, the amount of capital invested. And there's a real problem with those, both the strategy and the metric. You could have job creation, but what if the bulk of the jobs created in the economy didn't provide a living wage for the families in the community? And what if the jobs you're creating or helping to create is leading to higher working poverty because people cannot earn enough? So it's not enough just to measure jobs, but the quality of the jobs that we're creating. The other issue is when you spend all your economic development activities focusing on quick wins and attraction, and you ignore the lion's share of companies and workers already in the economy and the strategies that we need to have to support their success, their growth, solve their problems so they can stay in the market, so that our entrepreneurs can continue to grow their businesses in our community. And I often find traditional economic development has long overlooked the vast majority of people who currently actually power our economic dynamism. To be clear, who are these vast majority of people who actually power economic dynamism? The vast majority of people in our cities actually cannot work from home. 
Most of them, and in fact, most mid-wage workers and low-wage workers have to report to a workplace to do their jobs. And so we have to also just think about how to create a city that works for them. Like I said earlier, the pandemic presents an opportunity to do things differently. What might that look like? So do you think cities are going to recover from COVID? Or are we potentially facing a decades-long rebuilding process? New York lost uh, $10.5 billion in tax revenue from 2020 to, to, to 2022. Uh, what, what are we looking at here? Yeah, and I also see that New York has shed about 10% of its jobs. And so the economy is smaller right now. I don't know if that's an alarm because it's back to what you and I talked about, which is it's more important the quality of the jobs than just the volume itself. And it's more important that we have programs that help workers get back into good jobs. And so smaller is not bad. The goal is better. And I think for New York and many cities, they're definitely going to bounce back because you have so many important industries in the media, in financial services, in securities, that's going to continue to anchor, and new high-tech industries that are going to anchor the city. It's going to do fine. The issue is, do you like the city that emerges from this pandemic? So the bigger question is not whether the city will bounce back, it's what kind of city will bounce back. And is it the kind of city that's going to keep workers and employers in it and attract folks back. The question now is, what ingredients does New York have that is so unique to New York that it has to preserve and not try to be something that it's not? And I think what people loved about New York was it was dynamic. It was a collision of cultures. It had so many arts choices. And those were things that you couldn't find in other cities. And so I hope that as part of all the different strategies that many city leaders are thinking about in New York is let's just make sure you guys preserve what is unique to New York, because I think that's what's going to get people to stay and come back. In some ways, we don't want to go back to normal. Normal wasn't working for a lot of people. My hope is that we don't go back to normal. The pre-pandemic city was highly unequal and benefited very few. And we have an opportunity now to create a much more prosperous city, a more inclusive city. And if we do that, it actually will create a more dynamic city for the long haul. So, okay, maybe it isn't the worst thing that a guy who has tried a lot of different things and has a lot of ideas about how to do things differently could be in charge of one of the world's most important cities. I want to go back to Katie Honan. I think when it comes to all the candidates, because people are so distracted, And people are distracted in general, whether or not there's a pandemic. But now, more than ever, whoever will be the next mayor will play a hugely large role. It's a very pivotal time in New York City and for its future. And I urge everyone to just take the time to look at the candidates. A lot of people will look at one video and they'll say, that's who I want. Like uh, now this video, maybe? Okay, but seriously, who is Andrew Yang? This question sounds simple, but really isn't. Who is Andrew Yang? That's, that is, like you said, that's a very complex question. Andrew Yang is, it, when I write about him, we always summarize people very quickly. He is a tech entrepreneur and former presidential candidate. He's an ideas person. He's a published author. He's discussed the fear and the role of automation and the future economy for the country and what it means. I think right now he is 
the leading mayoral candidate. And he represents for a lot of people this future and this idea of New York City rebounding from COVID with optimism. And now in a few weeks, he could be the Democratic candidate for mayor, depending on what happens within these next few weeks. Being mayor of New York City seems pretty difficult. The city faces a long recovery from the pandemic, which has killed more than 32,000 New Yorkers. Whether or not Midtown, the engine that keeps the rest of the city running, will start up again is anybody's guess. Crime is rising, and a lot of New Yorkers really don't like how public safety is currently maintained. It's a tough job. Andrew Yang has managed to reinvent himself multiple times, and that isn't easy. Somehow, he even hustled his way into the presidential race. And while he didn't win, he was a lot more interesting than the majority of the people on that stage. And you know it. Here's Harry Siegel. Andrew Yang's like a New York character, man. He's like a, he's a guy who, uh, who came to New York, settled here, grew some roots, did some business, found a wife, lived a wife, had kids, uh, you know, got hungry to try some other things, did them, got good at them, started on a roller coaster ride, and now he's somewhere on that ride, and we're all waiting to see what happens next. Andrew Yang really is a New York character, and pretty soon he could be the city's next mayor which, as you've heard over and over again, is not an easy job even in the best of times. The pandemic has been a human tragedy in New York, but it may also present an opportunity to do things differently, an opportunity to build a more inclusive, more dynamic, and more equitable New York. A New York that works for more New Yorkers. Right now, New York really needs its next mayor to be one of the best it's ever had. Maybe that's Andrew Yang, or maybe not. Next week on Who Is, someone who also ran for mayor, won, ran for president, lost, and then got to be in charge of trains and stuff. It's Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Next time on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests, Katie Honan, who covers City Hall for the Wall Street Journal. Previously, Honan covered Queens for DNA Info New York. Amy Liu, Vice President and Director of the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program, which she co-founded in 1996. And Harry Siegel, a senior editor at The Daily Beast, columnist at The Daily News, and co-host of the podcast FAQ NYC. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Luna Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Want to escape? On Thrillist Explorers, you'll travel around the world from the comfort of your own headphones. Join longtime Thrillist writer and host Will Fulton as he digs deep into wanderlust-inducing travel stories and interviews people who are running out of pages in their passports. From professional skater Tony Hawk detailing his RV trip across the states to legendary journalist Dan Rather giving his picks for the best food in Austin, Texas... Thrillist breaks down stories you'll want to tell your friends about, delivers actionable travel advice, and creates an inclusive experience that will inspire you to go around the globe, or at the very least, dream about it.